radical left has taken over the Democratic Party. Hello and welcome to Think Progressively, covering politics and all the other chaos life has to offer. This is episode 62, recorded on Friday, June 10th from Milwaukee. I'm Joe. And I'm Jason. And on today's episode, we take a look at America's culture wars to see if we are as polarized as we think we are. But first, the headlines. The fact is that everything he's saying so far is simply a lie. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. Up first in headlines, yesterday was the very first public hearing of the January 6th committee looking into the Capitol riot and Donald Trump's involvement in it. Primetime TV. Woo! So Jason, when's John Trump going to jail? I'm still betting that he dies every day. (laughs) So let me ask you this. Was there anything newsworthy that you thought that came from day one? I think the biggest or like the biggest surprise to me was the testimony from the filmmaker Nick Quested, the British filmmaker who was with the Proud Boys filming a documentary and they had to bail Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, out of jail on January. January 5th, which we brought up in episode 59, the the militia one, of why he was arrested and all that. But they, after they took him out of jail, they met with the leaders of the Oath Keepers, which was something that was not confirmed before, but is probably why they also charged Enrique Terrio and some of the other members of the Proud Boys with seditious conspiracy recently. So to me, that was kind of the biggest thing. Uh, A lot of it, you know, we already knew it it's not surprising to me when we've covered everything that led up to these hearings that was coming out and what everyone was saying so it's really just more of a reprisal of all of that yeah i think so too how did you feel about that little 11 minute movie they had with all the footage because yes i agree it definitely was all the things we saw before if you saw any like footage or documentary from january 6th you basically saw it or at least the events that were they, shown in it, but they're from like different perspectives. They had a lot of police cam, body cam footage that wasn't shown before. So I thought it gave a good perspective of what was going on from their end. And I thought it was pretty powerful, but I didn't know if it was as powerful since I already kind of saw that stuff. Before. Right. It's, it's the same method they took when they started these hearings originally this was the first public hearing but they also in the first hearing they had also had a movie before it which was available to the public to watch yeah and it's kind of the same like very much focused on the police and all the violence it was telling that they didn't cover any of this on fox news well <laughs> right we're gonna they get to had that too. they had like tucker carlson talking over it and they had like a camera shot of the the room that would this was going on in the the chambers and and they were showing the movie, but whenever it cut to anything violent, like smashing windows to break in or beating cops, they would cut away and just show the members in the chamber watching the video. And they wouldn't actually show the video because they don't want you to know that it wasn't just a tourist group that was very respectful and stayed behind the uh, velvet ropes and, and did nothing wrong. Well, it's also a liability thing, too. It's like, hey, let's show the thing that we basically caused and said never happened. 
Right. I do I do remember someone else was talking about how the reason why Fox News wasn't really going to cover it was because they were also worried that their own hosts were also in the evidence of this same committee. So we talked about this before with Sean Hannity talking to Mark Meadows and um, oh, who's there? Laura Ingram was also in there as well saying that this will be really bad for us. You got to get Trump to stop now. And they didn't know that that was going to actually show up. So the idea of having the January 6th committee condemning Fox News' own hosts and having them like live stream their own condemnation. I think that would was be too risky. positive in the eyes of most Fox News viewers. <laughs> I really did like Liz Cheney in it. Again, there really wasn't anything we didn't see too much before. I like the fact that she undoubtedly said that this was pre-planned. There was no spontaneity with it, and they directly implicated Trump with this. That is what they're going to try to show. It's definitely been referred to as the third impeachment of Donald Trump. Oh, right. And I I think they should impeach him every day that it doesn't get past the Senate. Yeah, I agree. A couple of quotes from Liz. First one, Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. And she also said, quote, tonight I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. And that's the big quote. That's the one that's being kind of likened to the McCarthy hearings where the, after all this time, sir, have you no decency? Yep. Uh, And hopefully it has that same impact and effect. I still say, I mean, I doubt it. We don't don't necessarily need to listen to Liz Cheney all that much. <laughs> it, that's the funny part. She is like one of the most actually conservative members of the House. Yes. But they hate her and demonize her and don't think she's a real Republican just because she doesn't fall in line with the Donald Trump cult. Well, no, exactly. And that's where I think it's very important that, and at least on the first day, they came out explicitly with Liz Cheney saying that this was all Trump's fault. This was all premeditated. And there was no like, wiggle room that we should do something about this one of the things that i liked was that they definitely painted the picture that no one really believed that I agree. The election was rigged. Yes, I I thought that was very good what they did. That all of the major officials know that Donald Trump lost the election. And they told him. Right. We we have got uh, three different quotes here. Uh, The first from William Barr, the attorney general at the time. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea that the election was stolen, which I told the president was BS. Now, this is a horrible person, William Barr, who definitely towed the line in the Trump administration, pushed a lot of horrible fascist reactions to the riots after the death of or the killing of George Floyd, including using federal agencies to just pull people off the streets in unmarked vehicles, not wearing any badges or identification. All of that was okayed by William Barr. He was willing to do all of that. The gassing of the protesters in Washington, D.C. outside of the church so that Trump could have his, you know, hold up his Bible upside down moment. Well, if you could think all the way back to the um, Mueller investigation. <laughs> right. And and how that was handled. And well, he intentionally tried covering it up and spinning it and admitted to it. Yeah. And like openly. But yet he was not willing to go through with this claim that the election was fake and fraudulent with no evidence. And that prompted another quote from Ivanka Trump, which we haven't heard a whole lot from. Now, this one I was kind of surprised about, to be honest. And she was asked 
asked if William Barr's statement that there was no election fraud affected her. Because if you remember, William Barr made that statement publicly in November that there was no election fraud, that there was no evidence. And she said, it affected my perspective. I respect Attorney General Barr, which I think... Whatever. Yeah, tells you something about her. (laughs) So I accepted what he was saying. So Donald Trump's daughter, one of his closest advisors... Which is also weird. The love of his life said that she didn't believe that there was election fraud. And then we also had former Trump campaign attorney, the person he's literally paying money to tell him that there was election fraud and that he can still be president. Alex Cannon, who testified that he was not able to find evidence of fraud that would overturn the election results in any of the swing states that they needed, and presented that information to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in November. Well, was he the one that basically said the there was no there there? That was Mark Meadows' response. Yeah. And he said yes. So that is the lawyer that you are hiring to find election fraud. Your guy that you're paying. He works for you. And he's saying he doesn't find any evidence. And this is back in November. Correct. So that's where I think this, at least first day of hearing, really did a good job. Where they're just trying to get out this idea that this was not just a random mob. They were trying deliberately to overturn a safe and secure election. That Yeah, they knew there was no evidence of fraud. They pushed the narrative anyway. They riled up people. Well, just lied. They just straight up lied to millions of people. Right. They they pushed ahead with a narrative they knew was not true. Mm -hmm. That they knew, in fact, the opposite was true. And they used that anger that that instilled in people and pointed them at the Capitol building and at Congress and at Mike Pence. So, do you think then, with this at least first day of information, do you think Trump's just crazy? As in, like, I I don't think he lied. I, I think he truly believes it at this point because he's been repeating it so much now i think he's just that crazy drunk uncle that can't get over himself well i saw an interview this morning with adam kinzinger who is the other republican that's on the committee who's basically quitting politics over this or at least not running for re-election in illinois and his response i think sums it up pretty well is that he believes that trump knows the truth that he lost the election but he is so committed to the idea that he can never lose that he just won't accept it and will do anything to make that not true sure and i think that's kind of it i mean look at the history of donald trump and how he grew up and everything he is a fraud and he is a loser and he does everything in his power which he is a very rich person he may not be a billionaire but he's still very wealthy and powerful he's the president in the United States at oh, one right. point. He uses everything in that considerable power to shape the narrative that that's not true. And we heard it. We had clips of it on our show previously. He said the words, if I lose to Joe Biden, you'll never hear from me again. Right. So he cannot accept the fact that he lost. So I don't think he's capable of accepting that. He might know it, but because of the cognitive dissonance, he is not capable of accepting it. And speaking of Trump, let's turn to how the Republicans responded or responded, whatever. Basically, Kevin McCarthy and Republicans held a press conference hours before the hearing started. Did you happen to hear any of that? I refuse to listen to Kevin McCarthy. You didn't miss much, I can tell you that. It was just same old nonsense over and over again, but basically they spent a good like 10, 15 minutes 
Manch just calling the entire committee illegitimate, saying that this was just a witch hunt and how the this is just Democrats not getting over the 2020 election, which is insane. And also two Republicans, including one of the most conservative Republicans. Well, and I think that's a big thing, too, where that's why they had Liz Cheney start this off. There's no doubt about it. They, I'm sure that Jamie Raskin and all the other Dems said, you have to lead this thing. There's just no other way around it. Otherwise, they're just going to say this is just a Democratic hunt against Donald Trump. Well, they're still saying it. I mean, they're still matter. saying they, it. Because yeah. remember, Liz Cheney's not really a Republican. I'm sure Adam Kinzinger's not really a Republican. Right. Uh, one of my favorites is that they're still blaming Nancy Pelosi for the January 6th attack, saying mm. that she should have done more. I... <laughs> I can't believe that that's kind of the way they're going. I mean, I know that Nancy Pelosi is a boogeyman to the right, but the idea that they're still trying to blame Nancy Pelosi for the attack is like- They the, blame her for everything. It's right. her fault that the committee only has two Republicans, even though they pulled back their nominations for the committee after she rejected two of them, yep. uh, including Jim, Jim Jordan. Jordan, who right. has no place, an openly biased right. person. And, then, and Mitch McConnell refused to have the Senate involved. This should be a joint hearing yep. of Congress, but Mitch McConnell refused to cooperate completely. So, oh, it's only Democrats running this. Yeah, because you refuse to participate. Yep, because they're absolutely insane. But And then it's, oh, it's Nancy Pelosi's fault. And of course, since it's Republicans and conservatism, they have to do the whole whataboutism by asking, why aren't there <laughs> any primetime hearings about illegal immigration or inflation? Yes, what would they actually like to do about illegal immigration or inflation? Let's talk policy, of which the Republicans have none. Nope, not a single damn thing. Oh, should we privatize the oil companies so that we can actually control prices so that you would actually be able to blame the president for high gas prices? No, you don't want to do that. Well, I want to hear their plan for inflation right now. I would love to hear their plan on inflation right yeah, now. Yeah, it would have to be the only possible thing that could happen is government regulation or spending, right? Mm-hmm. There's no other, the only other alternative is to do exactly what we're doing, which is nothing. Well, right. And we even talked about last week where we were saying that oil companies were raking in huge profits all the time, even though people were suffering during high gas prices. That's the free market. That's a global economy. They've got nothing. And the idea that Republicans are just sitting here trying to still obfuscate this entire event is bonkers to me. I mean, I get, I absolutely understand the idea of cults and cults mentalities, but still just witnessing it just drives me up a wall. And it's being accepted. If you look at any of the videos, that are coming out this morning online about people talking about these hearings and you look at the comments, they're all echoing these same, oh, they don't want to talk about the real issues. They just want to waste money on this hearing. So it's effective. It's yeah. ridiculous and dishonest and disingenuous, but it's effective. Well, and I can understand, like, let's talk about the typical American voter, which actually we'll talk more about later in this episode. I understand the idea of that, right? Where you have a typical American voter who saw January 6th, said it was really bad and now they're seeing the aftermath of a pandemic they're seeing huge issues with the job market right now which is now recovering now they're seeing huge amounts of inflation gigantically high gas prices that they're not used to seeing at you know record rates i get the idea of saying i don't want them talking about something that happened months ago i'm cared about what's happening right now because i'm concerned about my family and my own well-being so i can see that and that's actually where you're seeing a lot of that in polling too where 
most people don't care about the January 6th insurrection. It pisses me off that they don't care, but they don't care. So Republicans are going to take advantage of that. And it's literally going to be the apathy of American voters, which will be our downfall. As is usually the case. And then just for fun, I wanted to throw in a little bit. Um, Trump did respond. How? Well, of course, on his new social media platform, Truth Social. Quote, so the unselect committee, capitalized, of political hacks, all caps, refuses to play any of the many positive witnesses and statements, refuses well, to talk about the election fraud, capitalized. So what would be a positive and, witness or uh, statement about the riot? <laughs> like, my back really hurt, but then somebody slammed me against the ground. It kind of <laughs> felt better afterwards. I'm like, uh, not going to lie. We needed to replace those windows anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> refuses to talk about the election fraud and irregularities. I think they talked about election fraud quite a lot, actually, and about how there was none. That took place on a massive scale. Our country is in such trouble. I mean, I agree with him yes, on that. Yes, we can honest. all agree that on that. That one I agree with you on, Donald. Thank you very much. Let's stop focusing on this event that happened a year and a half ago. Let's talk about the real issues that affect America today. Let's yep. talk about... <laughs> Let's talk about young Republican women and what they should be doing with their lives. So last week in Dallas, Texas, Turning Points USA, which is a young conservative, completely grassroots, not funded all by millionaires who are trying to. I think the Koch brothers millions. are billionaires, actually. Good point. Exactly my point. It's everything I said was true so far. Still, how they conference for young women leaders and how they should view themselves within the conservative movement. What is their role? Um, I believe the Rock said it best: "Know your role and shut your mouth." Was basically the entirety of the conference. Multiple speakers told them how they need to live biblically and find a good conservative christian man to lead their households have many children charlie kirk the founder of turning points usa said which also i love the fact that charlie kirk is also a speaker at a women's conference that just is amazing to me quote if you want to go meet conservative men that have their act together that aren't like woke beta men like start a turning points usa chapter you'll meet a lot of them yeah and you totally won't get date raped <laughs> i could not imagine a group of like the most shittiest people on a college campus than those on a turning points usa group oh god and of course conservatives token black woman candace owens made an appearance saying men don't um, like i'm sorry sweetie men are talking <laughs> That's what should have happened during the conference. <laughs> but go ahead. Let's let's hear what can. I mean, this is literally what they're actually saying too. Quote, men don't like women that act like men. Great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you have way more luck when you begin tapping into the nurturing aspect, your natural superpowers. Men just find those women to be more desirable. And she also instructed them to let men lead. So be subservient. You know, See? like the Shut up, says. let the men talk. Yep. Yeah. Why are you out? of the kitchen what's going on right now <laughs> I'm losing my mind. Why aren't you legally obligated by the government to be having a baby right now? <laughs> oh, God. We need to make more babies and make more Americans, another one said. Yeah, I wonder what the Who in this room is. is unmarried? <laughs> and it's supposed to be to, like, young women. I, I would guess a lot of them. And they also, of course, Ew. have to... The biggest, most important thing that you have to do is not have sex until you're married, because you make baby jesus cry oh my god the so analogy given by victor marx another man talking at the <laughs> 
Young Women's Leadership Summit because, of course, they're the only ones that have important opinions. Clearly, as Candace Owens would say, let them lead, had said... Wait, no, you need to say a line first. Who refers to Eileen as, quote, my bride. His wife, Eileen Marks. I, yeah, I guess it's creepy, but that's probably the least creepy thing he does, so that's fine. He also compared his wife to a car... <laughs> saying you'd buy a ferrari without test driving it right and of course what? this was <laughs> oh, no and of course this was the height of chivalry to eileen marks who responded ladies that's the kind of man you want someone who honors you i mean a ferrari thank you <laughs> As, of course, that's the only thing that's important to I'm... a Republican is wealth and status. So, of course, you would buy a Ferrari without driving it or knowing anything about it. It's a Ferrari. I'm going to go right home and tell my girlfriend that she's a Ferrari. <laughs> and I don't even need to test drive you. <laughs> so sweet. Oh, there you go. Also, that whole part was during a panel of Christian marriage counselors. And we won't even talk about the fact that, of course, the women is the object to own in that analogy as well. Oh, they are the Christian marriage counselors. Ew. <laughs> Their talk was titled, Creating a Godly Foundation for Your Relationship. Ew. You know, the idea of Christian marriage counselors just drives me bonkers. I always like that, being raised Catholic myself, that they always see the priest as like the man. Marriage right. council, like the guy who it's so weird <laughs> cannot be in a relationship is the one giving you advice and i just i jason i cannot fathom i mean i know this place was packed well it wasn't that packed there's so much production and they, it's in like, dallas it, it was but it, still man i the who's the audience it's literally a let's subjugate myself and oppress my own like brethren conference it's literally a we are the weaker of the two sexes conference yeah it's a conservative christian it's so conference. why oh it's so gross i believe that if you read second timothy uh, you'll answer all of your questions oh and charlie kirk's face is so tiny yeah he's uh putting on some weight i was just gonna say and it looks worse that he's getting chubbier <laughs> <laughs> so yeah his eyes and his whole face is rather small compared to his head he's got like a bobblehead but yet if you picture a bobblehead but you moved all the features of the face to like the middle that's what charlie kirk looks like and yet gaining weight on top of that oh, is not helping this is terrible man like how how influential do you think this actually is what what do you think the success of this type of thing is going to be in the future not very because it's i mean it's a very niche crowd they're younger honestly uh statistically if you you're gonna go after young people for religion you're better off going after women like if you look at the numbers they tend to get stuck in cults earlier yeah. and stay in them longer but uh, you look at demographics as a whole it's not it, they're not gaining ground Ugh. but even like with this alice clark said that she wants the biggest baddest voices in the conservative movement but you're talking about how crappy your own gender is well they have their place they just have to raise the kids and make Make sure that their husband is comfortable and happy. Ugh, gross. Continuing the bare naked ladies skit, Joe. It's been <laughs> one week since our last episode, and which what? means theme the, music. There's been gun a gun reform bill that's passed the house. I can't believe. Oh, uh, it says here will not be taken up in the Senate due to Republican opposition. Won't get the sixty votes needed to pass the filibuster. Uh, won't even get fifty votes 
to pass a majority. Okay, so never mind that. Uh, we had a mass shooting yesterday. This one in Smithsburg, Maryland. It's the 254th mass shooting of the year. Uh, we're about halfway through the year, so on pace to break a record for most mass shootings that right. we set last year. It was a workplace shooting at Columbia Machine. A shooter killed three co-workers, critically injured a fourth, and got got into a shootout with a state trooper in which they were both injured. Oh my god. And of course, we are skipping a bunch of mass shootings along the way, just kind of going with the bigger headlines. <laughs> because the, we don't have enough The more time. notable ones. It would literally be how many mass shootings this week, the podcast, if we tried reporting on them all. Oh god. You know, and what's really scary is, I think we've done this before too, where we accidentally like would reference a mass shooting, but we referenced the wrong mass shooting. So they, oh no, it's not that one. It's like Parkland. Oh no, it's not Parkland. It's actually Carl. I'm talking about Colorado. And they just keep referencing ones because there's just so many, man. I yeah, too many to, to this remember. This is horrible. And and you're right. At the end of the day, we're not doing anything about it again. Because why bother? We can't even get all the Democrats on board for God's sakes. Well, let's talk about an incident involving an armed madman that Republicans are finally upset about. Let's hear about it. Do you want to read my headline? Or uh, I love this. He- I, I mean, <laughs> I am very proud of this headline. I mean, your headline is coward chickens out on plan to kill beer and sexual assault. Allegedly loving Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. It's a wonderful. I, I should be writing for like the New York Times, I think. <laughs> So in this story, we have a disturbed individual from California who flew into Washington with a gun, lockpicking kit, and padded shoes. They're presenting this like he's some kind of like ninja shoes. They're like, you know, soft on the bottom. The only thing I I look, I'm sure I'm on a watch list now because I was searching for this. Because I'm like, who who has padded shoes? Their idea was, I guess, that inside Brett Kavanaugh's home that he could be stealthier. Oh. padded shoes the only thing i could come up with there are boots that have felt bottoms i i forgot the name they have a specific name uh, usually used by fishermen uh, oh. who fish on like wet rocks because it it gives you better grip on the rocks so you don't kill yourself yeah that's the only thing i can come up with i don't know if that's what he had or if i'm picturing like the the tabby like split toed ninja shoes <laughs> i'm hoping it was that but he says that he was angry by the leaked Roe v. Wade overturn uh, Supreme Court decision and a presumed future Second Amendment like loosening of gun rights in America. He was angry about that. That's why he wanted to go and kill Brett Kavanaugh. When he arrived, he took a cab to Kavanaugh's home, saw the U.S. Marshal's security detail that Supreme Court justices have, proceeded to walk away from the home, and called 911 to report himself and state that he was thinking about killing himself and that he needed help. He even called back. When they asked him where he was, he didn't know. Uh, He said, let me go look for a street sign and I'll give you a call back. And he literally went and found a street sign, called back, and gave them his location where he was immediately arrested by police. He had a gun with him. It was locked in a briefcase, which was also zip-tied shut because he had just gotten off the plane. 
plane. I guess that's how you, I, I would not know how you're able to transport a gun on a plane, but apparently that is uh, the how you way. Do it. Oh. If you hear any conservative news outlet reporting this story, and honestly, even like CNN, this guy was ready to storm Brett Kavanaugh's house and he got tackled right at the entrance by police. Like he almost did it when he didn't even do go up to the house. He never even was close to following through. But thanks to the laws, he will almost certainly be charged with attempted murder anyway, because just the act of preparing to that point and having a gun with you is enough to pass the threshold of attempted murder when you call the police on yourself. He would have been better off had he just walked away and not said anything. He asked for psychiatric help, and he will almost certainly end up in jail. But it's a mental health problem, right? It's always a mental health problem. Right, not that he had easy access to a firearm. He was able to transport a firearm across the country. No one questioned it. (laughs) It's your right. It's the Second Amendment. Can't take that away from you. Who does? And I said I'd never listen to Kevin McCarthy. I lied. Ah. I listened to Kevin McCarthy give an impassioned teary-eyed speech pleading for legislation to be passed it's it's passed the senate already it's waiting in the house to protect exactly nine people in the united states to increase the security which wasn't even necessary in this instance nope for the supreme court because brett kavanaugh has a wife and children doesn't care about the 19 children who are currently having funerals in texas they don't need their own u.s marshal protection well they don't now i don't understand why no one is asking how many doors brett kavanaugh has on his house i actually did see someone meme about that to be honest kevin mccarthy's not ted cruz isn't (laughs) and this came a day one day after he sent out memos instructing house republicans to vote no on eight gun safety bills citing opposition from the nra and gun owners of america one day after saying we cannot pass any legislation on gun control he gave a freak out speech on the house floor begging for help to protect supreme court justices from gun violence well it's because they don't care they don't care at all man if they care they wouldn't be republicans it's almost like we have two different cultures in our country and we're battling in some kind of big fight hate your segues It's not too pained for you. Let's do the segue to the main topic. Go. <laughs> Let's go to the main topic. That was really a pr- productive segment, wasn't it? It's hard to get any word in with this clown. So... Let's talk culture wars. Let's do it. The reason why I chose this topic is because many of us think that culture wars are a given. If I asked any one of you guys who are listening, you all like how many of you, is America polarized? Do we have culture wars right now? Are we in a culture war right now? Most of you probably would say, well, duh, we are. But there's actually a lot more debate to this than meets the eye. I'm actually in grad school right now talking about political polarization and culture wars as we speak. And I thought it was going to be a very simple, straightforward type of class. And it turns out not to be so. So what I want to do today is 
is share some information about what culture wars were, what American polarization may actually be, and what experts and scholars say on the subject. And my goal for you, at least with Jason, is I want to show you the other side of the argument, see what you think about it, and then I'll tell you kind of where I'm coming from about whether or not I think polarization is still happening in America today. I'm mostly going to let you go on this one. Uh, You've done a lot more research on this than I have. Well, I kind of had to. I didn't have much of a choice. I'm going to talk about the little bit of research that I did on as like the history of culture wars in America and kind of my take on it first, and then uh, we'll go through your more academic pursuits. So let's talk about what culture wars means. So the dictionary definition is it has an origin in German, Kulturkampf. (laughs) which was coined due to the struggle between the pre-Nazi government and the Catholic Church. And it was used to talk about the influence of the Catholic Church and the fight between those two aspects of German culture. In America, it's been used sporadically throughout the 20th century. The modern usage began after the 1991 book Culture Wars, the struggle to define America by James Davison Hunter, was a sociologist at the University of Virginia. And then the next year, during his campaign against incumbent President George H.W. Bush, Pat Buchanan gave a speech on the cultural war at the 1992 Republican National Convention in Houston. I have a couple quotes. This is basically what most people consider the start of the modern culture war in America. I was just going to chime in and agree with the same thing. There is a religious war going on in our country for the soul of America. It is a cultural war, as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be as was the Cold War itself. And his second quote, the agenda Clinton and Clinton already railing against Hillary Clinton before she was ever even the first lady. This is ridiculous that she's been the target for so long. I don't even, you know, I was younger at this time. You were much younger at this time. I don't even remember how much they hated her from the very start. I was just born. The agenda Clinton and Clinton would impose on America, abortion on demand. Demand, a litmus test for the Supreme Court. When they like to know. <laughs> Homosexual rights. Discrimination against religious schools. Women in combat units. <laughs> That's change, all right, but it's not the kind of change America wants. It is not the kind of change America needs, and it is not the kind of change we can tolerate in a nation that we still call God's country. Kind of feel like uh, this is religiously motivated for some reason. Yeah, a bit, huh? Well, I think one parallel I want to make is, do you see how crazy they still were back when we thought politics was normalized? Well, this was fringe, right? This Pat Buchanan speech was considered fringe in 1992. He was not, this is not the Reagan, Reagan was more of a racist. So this was not Reagan-style politics. Right, and this was not George H.W. Bush's politics. This seemed really aggressive and extreme for the time. This was someone who had just lost the primary and was lashing out. Yeah. Now, this would be any, any Ron DeSantis, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, 
anybody would laugh at this as being naive and simple-minded. This sounds like child's play compared to what we hear today. I mean, literally, homosexual rights. We don't need that in America. Women in combat units? Come on. Ask Candace Owens if they should be there. <laughs> Why aren't there men leaders? Well, there, there are. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, women don't usually get to lead anything. Good point. It's not the kind of change we have here in God's country. And he was in Houston, so that accent is appropriate. And as inflammatory as that speech was, I think it's important to note that that idea didn't carry. So obviously Clinton won the 1992 election. When Bob Dole ran against Clinton in 1996 and lost, he was upset because there was lack of people upset about these cultural issues. Um, His very infamous, where is the outrage speech, where he got very angry and said, why aren't more people outraged about any of these things that I care about? And I think that's kind of telling where maybe maybe you were right, where even with the idea of this being so fringe back in the day, it wasn't being resonant with the American public. If you remember, in well, you said you were just born around this time, but in 1992... Yeah, I don't remember 1992, man. When Bill Clinton won the presidency... Yeah, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> it wasn't like a commanding victory due to policy. It was literally because the Republicans had a third-party candidate that split the vote. And it wasn't an extremist Pat Buchanan style, we need more Bibles, guns, and keep the gays in the closet candidate. Was that Ross Perot? It was a libertarian, Ross Perot. Yeah. So that wasn't that, Pat Buchanan's influence wasn't even part of this victory. It was literally, the Republicans were split because George Bush raised taxes in his first term. That's what the big deal was. So, yeah, it wasn't the major thing that it is now. It wasn't the all-encompassing political force that like you would contribute towards Donald Trump. Donald Trump is definitely fits that Pat Buchanan mold with the populism and the appeal towards these non really political divides in the country, or at least not directly political. It's not policy, right? It's culture, which is why we call it culture wars. So one thing that I found very interesting when I was doing this, and originally it was, I, I noticed this when I was doing the history of like when they talked about the usage of the term culture war and when it was really used and what you could define as the largest times of culture war in the 20th century. It was literally, it started to get used in the 1920s when we had post-industrial revolution, post-World War One, and we started to have this modernization of the country and immigration was starting to be a big thing. You had the, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan around this time and then the next big time that the culture wars sprang up was the end of the 60s into the 70s when you had the hippie counterculture and the fallout of the civil rights movement where you had this big backlash against you know we don't want to give rights to people who don't look like us and you had a big pushback from the conservatives on that time the 1990s which we're talking about 
about right now. But then by 1996, it had stopped. And Bob Dole wasn't able to use that to win the presidency. All of this sounded very familiar. And then I remembered episode 59, the Patriot Militia episode. It's getting a lot of reference. This yeah, yeah. When we were doing research for that, the Patriot Militia movement gained popularity in the 1920s, in the 1970s, in the 1990s, and it stopped dead at the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and didn't come back up into prominence until Barack Obama was president. Exactly the same as all of this culture war. So it seems very apparent that the two things are linked. That part of the culture war gives rise to these militant extremists. And they're also Christian nationalists. It's the same type of hate that gets brought up. And I just found that interesting. And my personal take is that culture wars, even though we say they're cultural because they they we're talking about what makes America America. So that's why it becomes culture. Sure. But they're always also political. They because we especially when it's politicians talking about it, they're talking about changing policy to be in line with their views. And they're always fought at the expense of already marginalized groups, groups that are trying to fight for their rights. And that, to me, kind of takes it in a different place where, yes, you can talk academically about what's culture versus politics and say, you know, some of the things are silly when we talk about Mr. Potato Head and the uproar over that and having kids being read to by drag queens and, you know, oh, why are people all upset about this? But ultimately, we're talking about the right of people who are non-gender conforming, mm-hmm. right? The reason why we'd rather just call him Potato Head and not Mr. Potato Head is because we don't want to put unnecessary gender labels on things when we don't need to. And then besides, you could save money just by one Potato Head and then you'd have both the boy and the girl parts and you don't got to buy two of them. That's just smart. That's that's good <laughs> That's good uh, shopping. And, you know, we want children to be comfortable around people that dress maybe differently than they're expecting because who cares and it's only fear that's instilled by other people around them that would change their opinion on that and you can see that when uh, there was just a big uproar about uh, some show somewhere where kids voluntarily were walking up and down a catwalk with drag queens it's kind of like the rupaul's drag race kind of kind of thing and there was a huge like oh my god we're grooming kids that's the big thing now right everyone's grooming kids and it's ridiculous the kids didn't care they were smiling they were having fun because they don't see anything wrong with it and on the surface the conservative obsession with crt an obscure graduate level law theory and their push to ban any books discussing the history of race and racism in america of course along with any mention of the existence of non-conservative christian sexual identities it makes for funny headlines and good nighttime talk show monologues, but it's literally those actions are pushing back the civil rights movement 60 years and forcing LGBT teachers back into the closet. Well, and I would even, I think I agree with you where there is no separation between culture and politics. I'm one that believes everything is politics, and I'm kind of sick of the whole mantra of, oh, let's not talk about politics. Don't let's, make it political. Let, 
don't make it political, Ted right? Cruz. Well, I mean, look at any Republican after a mass shooting, right? Don't make it political. Everything is politics. When politicians talk about it, it's politics. When voters are angry about something and want to have something codified into law, that's politics. So I think CRT is actually probably a really good example of that, where you have politicians who are now actually enacting real laws based on this fake outrage. Yeah, we've got some statistics. At least 36 states have adopted or introduced laws or policies that restrict teaching about race and racism. There are literally like more books on the proposed list to ban now than there have been in the past 20 years that they've kept track. And the Republicans will tell you that it's cancel culture and the liberals that want to ban things, which we already discussed and showed that that's not true. We went through the list and it's books that have anything to do with sexuality that's anywhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. Yep. And it's things like literally the story of Ruby Bridges, the girl who was forcibly taken to school by U.S. Marshals to integrate a school. Her story, one of the most compelling stories for a little girl to have that kind of courage to be able to put up with that. And she's, I mean, she was being used as a political pawn, no doubt. But just that story is banned in schools. You can't even teach about it because you teach that racism existed and that white people were racist. And that makes white people feel bad. We can't do that. We can't have a discussion about race because it makes me feel bad. That's childish and stupid and shows that, no, you really do need a discussion about race and racism and the history of America because you can't handle it as an adult currently. So we need to have that discussion. And it's even worse when it comes to the LGBT community. According to an NBC News analysis of data from the American Civil Liberties Union and LGBTQ advocacy group Freedom for All Americans that was done in March, so up until March 15th, State lawmakers have proposed a record 238 bills that would limit the rights of LGBTQ Americans this year. So only three months, three months and 15 days. There were 191 bills introduced in all of 2021 and just 41 if you go back to 2018. And this slate of legislation includes measures that would restrict LGBTQ issues in school curriculums, permit religious exemptions to discriminate against LGBTQ people and limit trans people's ability to play sports, use bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity, and receive gender-affirming health care. This is real, and it's hurting people that desperately need help. The suicide rate among the LGBTQ community is higher than any other community, and instead of understanding and love from their fellow Americans, they're getting further marginalization and hate. That is not just a joke for late night. That's not just, that's eh, culture wars, you know, it, it's, what are you going to do? It's always there. It's real. It's real, and it really affects people. And it's being weaponized by right-wing conservative media to stoke hatred and fear among their listeners. Like I said, you listen to any time they talk about any of this, they'll always talk about it's grooming, it's turning our kids gay, it's making people be transgender because 
because they're learning about it. So then they want to do, look at the numbers go up over time. It's not that as it becomes more accepted in society, people are more willing to be open about it. No, it's causing it to happen. And it's hurting our children and we need to stop it. And even worse, it's being capitalized by legislators who are passing half-baked regressive laws written by conservative religious think tanks and lobbying groups. And these laws are going into effect all across the country, and they will have an impact on these people's lives for years to come. And that's why it's important. And you can't just say, oh, it's all just entertainment, and it's, you know, it's Tucker Carlson, Fox News, I don't pay attention to any of that you should because it's having real impact on society and we should stand up against it so to say oh the culture wars is a myth it's, you know, the, the answer is really in the center. What's the center on if people should have civil rights? Some? You can have some rights. Well, on Wednesdays and Sundays, you can be gay, but the rest of the week, you have to be straight. I think you just hit the good segue point. I, to be honest, actually, I don't know if I need to say anything. You, <laughs> that, <laughs> should be, that should be the main topic. Right? That's all that's, I have. Yeah, that's done. We're good. I don't need to say a damn thing anymore. <laughs> no, I think you hit a lot of really good points. I think what we're going to be talking about is to not dismiss anything that you said because I want to make it very clear that when scholars are looking at culture wars and polarization, they notice this. They clearly do. Even those who argue against the idea of culture wars, they clearly notice that something's happening. So you guys may find this semantic and actually I'm okay with you interrupting Jason and saying something may be semantic or interrupting <laughs> with something you may disagree with. I like that. So, but I want to get into how scholars view culture wars and polarizations. So Jason gave you a huge amount of information. <laughs> <laughs> about why culture wars are happening, the consequences of these culture wars, how right-wing extremists are constantly making more and more laws that are hurting marginalized groups. That sounds like a very obvious thing that culture wars and polarization is increasing and happening more often in our society. Is that an accurate? Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Perfect. All right. <laughs> but in political science, there's actually a huge disagreement on culture wars that's been spanning the last few decades. One side argues that Americans are becoming more polarized over culture wars, very similar to what Jason just said. The RSI actually considers it mostly a myth, which sounds crazy, right? But that's going to be what our focus is on this episode. I may not necessarily agree with this, but I want to do is put this idea out there because I thought it was a very interesting understanding of the concept. A lot of this stuff comes from a camp led by a political scholar named Morris Fiorina, who with um, Samuel Abrams and Jeremy Pope wrote Culture War, the myth of a polarized America. And their argument is that culture war while they seem very apparent is actually based on misrepresentations of how we actually see the country as a whole. Quote from the book, the myth of a culture war rests on misinterpretation of election returns, lack of hard examination of polling data, systematic and self-serving misrepresentation by issue activists, and selective coverage by an uncritical media more concerned with news value than getting the story right. And that's a pretty hefty claim to make. Basically saying that everything that we hear today about culture wars, and this is not a new phenomenon like we talked about this goes all the way back many many decades i mean and there's the modern sense goes back to at least pat buchanan and how in the early 90s there should be more cultures back then so this is nothing new so how do political scientists define these terms then well according to fiorina culture wars are focused conflicts surrounding on societal moral and potentially religious issues which i think you kind of hit the nail on the head jason to be honest where these are things that are not your traditional economic issues they are separate when we're talking about 
taxes versus critical race theory, those are two separate things. I'm going to actually do a quick tangent where I would actually argue that you can't separate those things. And maybe you could disagree with me on this, Jason, if you want to. I would argue that economic things are also cultural things. I think there is a decent way to understand a difference between something like critical race theory and taxes. But I also consider economic issues as a way as our society trusts and maintains and what's to invest in particular things that we find important. Right. Really, honestly, dealing with critical race theory would mean that society needs to change and we need to bring up the lowest groups in our society, which tend to be minorities. The resistance to any of that change is economic in a way because you don't want to give up your wealth and you don't want to see that wealth going to especially people that you feel are undesirable. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It, I also like to use the issue of health as the exact same type of example, because healthcare is a hybrid of economic issues and cultural issues. If someone wants universal healthcare, it's because they believe healthcare is a right, which is a cultural issue. But someone also may be opposed to universal healthcare based on economic reasons. So the two of them are entwined together. I get pushback from that or based on that idea because they think there is a actual distinction between the two and we'll get into some research that shows that but for me it I just I can't separate the two in terms of polarization political scientists also struggled to define what polarization is so I want to ask you Jason off the top of your head what would you consider a polarized society or a polarized population of people a society where on most issues not only is it split fairly evenly but you can almost see where groups would come down on an issue without ever talking to them. Okay. Like you could say and present an issue and predict where most people will fall along lines based on other, other stances. Right. Issues. As in, you're, so you're talking about like, as in, you know what Democrats stand for, basically. Because if you say Democrat, you say they could probably stand for A, B, C, and D. Or if you say you're a Republican, you probably can assume that they are standing for like X, Y, and Z. And there's not much cross crossover there's not right. much drift that's what i would consider to be polar that's, that's actually very good i'm not gonna get into a ton of there's a lot of different definitions and more involved definitions out there you actually hit on a couple of points of some of those definitions jason but for ease of argument right now we're just gonna say most political scientists agree that there is polarization when there is a clustering of people at the poles of an issue so the way i like to describe this is imagine you have a scale that on one end is the number one and the other end is number seven. Your midpoint is number four. If we had everybody who is in this scale on points one and seven and there's nobody in the middle, we would probably call that society polarized. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. If everyone was huddled around three, four, and five and nobody was at the polls, probably not that polarized. The issue comes down to where do you draw the line? Do we draw it as in you have to have it at points one and seven? Are points three and five okay? If one side is polarized, but the other side isn't, is that still considered polarized? And it actually becomes a really hard challenge to pin down what we want to consider polarization because it's such a nebulous and vague concept. And there's the idea of arguments not swaying anyone. No one, it's kind of hard hard to get with a easy analogy like 
that. Right. So there are huge models trying to lay out exactly what polarization is. And that's kind of the closest we've gotten it to it right now. But even then, as of right now, there is no set defined definition of what polarization is among political scientists. And even today, there's still a lot of disagreement about what a definition of polarization should be and whether or not that's a sufficient way of measuring the differences that we're seeing today. Another issue that we're actually seeing right now is something called partisan sorting. So I like that you brought up the whole idea of predictability of beliefs, right? So if someone's a Democrat or Republican, you probably know what they believe today. Scholars like Fiorina and other people who are skeptical of polarization say that polarization isn't happening, but partisan sorting is. And basically, Ezra Klein has a great example in his book, and I'm going to link it in the show notes, called Why We're Polarized to showcase how partisan sorting works. Imagine you have 100 people, 40% that not 40 of those people support marijuana legalization. That still would be 40%. Yeah, I know, but I want to keep it to people, <laughs> not percents. Shut up. <laughs> 40 oppose it and 20 aren't sure. And they kind of disperse in the middle. All those hundreds of people or all those hundred people are split between Democrats and Republicans. They're all over the place. So you may have Democrats and Republicans, both in people who want to be those in legalizing it, those who oppose it and those who aren't sure. Ezra Klein argues that that is a polarized group of people. Even if they're not using identity or partisan parties like Republicans or Democrats, it's still polarized because you have people at the ends of a spectrum with very little middle. Now say those same people who all agree on what they already have, they didn't change their position, all the people who support marijuana legalization all move and become Democrats. All the 40 who oppose it all become Republicans and then the 20 stay where they are. Is that considered an increase in polarization if no one actually changed their mind? I would argue yes because you're adopting an identity around your position. It's going to make you more intractable. And that's the argument that we're having right now in political science, where people are saying that what I just showed you is not a term of polarization because no one actually changed any of their positions. No one actually has any differences of opinion. All we did was adopt new identities or we sorted ourselves out. A good real life example of partisan sorting is actually the big party switch that you may have heard back in like the all the way from like the 50s to the 80s, where you saw Dixiecrats who were super Republican Democrats or well, that's a really weird way of putting it. They were super conservative Democrats, mostly on racial lines, unfortunately. And you had Democrats who were on the north side of the country who were much more liberal, Democrats on the south who were super racist and conservative, and then you had Republicans who were super liberal on the north side, and then Southern Republicans who were super racist and very conservative on the south side. And then over time, we sorted ourselves out into the parties that you see today. The Southern strategy. Basically. So partisan sorting is not a controversial topic among political scientists. We all agree that this is happening. We just want to debate over, is this actually a way of polarization? One thing that's also not controversial is something that you actually talked about, Jason. We agree, or most scholars agree, that polarization in culture war attitudes among political elites, so that would include elected officials, political activists, highly engaged voters, podcasters, us, are polarized, and they're increasing in issue polarization. Basically, if you're talking between me and Jason versus Ben Shapiro, or Charlie Kirk and his tiny face, our ideologies are actually becoming farther and farther apart. You have right-wingers becoming much more right-wing and you have, I guess, progressives becoming much more progressive and lefty. So that is happening. However, the debate doesn't center around those people. The debate actually centers around the mass public. Imagine your aunts and your uncles and your families who don't give a shit. 
about politics. They don't watch Fox News. They don't watch MSNBC or CNN. They know who Joe Biden is. They know who Trump is. They may maybe can name a couple more politicians. Are those people, the ones who are not engaged, are they actually polarized? Do they actually care about culture war issues? And that's where the debate comes down to. And I would say the evidence recently definitely suggests they are. They're the ones at the school boards. They're the ones that don't know anything about, and I know I can see it in the show notes. This is coming up, so I don't want to say it. They they may not understand the actual topic being discussed, but they have an opinion, and it's really strong, and it's what someone told them on TV or what they heard on the internet. But were those the majority of people? That's the question. Or were those a small group of people that is extremely noticeable, extremely loud, and very dangerous? And that's hard. So Jason's getting ahead of me trying to pre-bunk my shit here. <laughs> but let's use critical race here as a really good example. During the heyday of critical race theory last year and in 2020, there was huge controversy around it. As Jason told you, there are laws being made now about critical race theory, banning critical race theory. You saw podcasts talk about it, including ours. You saw mainstream media segments and articles being written about it. It's all over the place. Everyone's talking about critical race theory. Protests in city council meetings, yep. in school well, board that meetings. That led to people getting arrested. Yes. Yes. Riots nearly yes. In, in school board meetings. However, when asked about critical race theory, in 2021, seven out of 10 people had no idea what critical race theory was, and they had never even heard of the term before. They even goes all the way into 2022, where still, I think it's one in five people, because now at least critical race theory has been out there for a while, still have never heard of the term before in their lives. Exactly. Because they that's not important to them. All they know is that the school is teaching them that all white people are racist, and that they should feel guilty, and they're all oppressors, and that minorities are all oppressed. It's all the talking points that Christopher Furio, he didn't explain what critical race Rufo. theory is. Yeah, Christopher Rufo. Christopher Furio sounds like a wrestler. He, he, well, it's a better, <laughs> I fixed his name a little. He didn't explain ever what it was. He wasn't even honest about what it teaches. But that's the message that got to all of those people. And it's the same thing that we're seeing with all the conspiracy theories, QAnon, the election fraud. There's no understanding of what the actual issue is, what they're even talking about. Literally people gathered in Dallas to see John Kennedy and John Kennedy Jr. magically come back to life. And lead the Republican Party. Well, I'm going to say it again. Ignoring that they're both Democrats. (laughs) But I'm going to say it again. How many people were those? Was that actually the mass majority of people? It's not the well-informed political elite. Well, when we talk about well-informed, I'm talking about people who are just engaged. I'm not talking about people who are actually learning about issues. If you're consuming... So a good takeaway from this podcast or from this episode is if you are merely listening to this podcast, you are already in the vast minority of people who cares about politics. The vast minority. Most people do not consume political media at all. Being more educated, if you have a bachelor's degree, you're already in the minority of people who care about politics. So that's something we have to be very considerate about is we have to remember, do the attitudes and do the issue opinions of the mass public actually change that much? And the data shows actually that's not the case. Even in critical race theory, according to those same polls, the vast majority of people agree that they want to teach 
systemic racism throughout history in our schools. They want to teach all the things that we would consider woke and all that stuff in our schools today. And that goes for Republicans, conservatives, and Democrats. Now, there are more Democrats and independents open to it than outspoken Republicans, but there's still a hefty amount of Republicans. I think it was like over half of them were, over, were okay with it. So we have to be very careful when we're defining what polarization, what culture wars are, who actually cares about them. We care about them, but that's because we're weird. We care about them, but that's because we're engaged. What does your uncle Frank, who has no clue what's going on and has and would rather watch the Packer game than anything else? What does he care about? Does he know anything about anything right now? Actually, a good example of that is my dad and stepmom. They live in the middle of the boonies up in Wisconsin. They are in a town of like 900 people and they have no clue about what's going on anytime. They call and they ask me, hey, what's going on right now? What's going on with Joe Biden? Why are prices so high? And they have no clue what's going on. Where are they hearing that from? Commercials mostly. So we're going to get to that. But keep that in mind as we're going through the rest of this. The other argument that a lot of skeptics of culture wars and polarization use is that our two-party system gives us the illusion of polarization. So you said, Jason, earlier that something that was kind of split down 50-50 should be considered generally polarized. In his book, Fiorina actually talks about this in quite detail, saying that the majority of the 1990s and 2000s were actually very, very close 50-50 races. And even then, the idea of red and blue states today has become the predominant way of looking at how our politics works. We know Texas is a red state. We know California is a blue state. But when you look at the populations of those states and the ideological positions of those people, they're fairly consistent with each other. Red states and blue states actually have very consistent metrics when it comes down to general public ideas and attitudes about things. You have lots of Texans who care about guns and lots of Texans who want more gun control. You have people in California who want more abortion access and those who don't. So we have to also be very careful about how we're defining I think that's a little differences. disingenuous because it will still break down along party lines. It will still be the areas in Texas that want gun control are going to be predominantly voting Democrat, even if Texas as a whole is a majority Republican state. And the areas in California that would like to restrict access to abortion are going to be more of the Republican areas of California. Each state is not completely red or blue except for a couple smaller hee-haw states that are almost completely But you're talking Republican. about pockets. There are, like For example, I think Wisconsin's a good example of that, right? Where you have pockets like Milwaukee and Madison who are super hardcore blue, and then you see more red when you get into more exurban rural areas. It's, it's based on the communities of those geographical areas. And they're still going to be very polarized in that divide. Okay. No, I think that's a fantastic argument. In fact, that's an argument that other scholars make in favor of polarization. That socioeconomic and geographical differences also lead to cultural war attitudes. I think one big criticism of this, which you hit one very well, is when people are asked about these types of issues, again, they don't know what they don't know. And when you're asking about these issues when they don't know, they'll probably just go along for the ride what they just, like, sure, I care about guns, I guess. I'll be for guns or something. And they'll be more in favor of guns. Something called issue salience or how engaged someone is with a particular topic or how on the mind a topic is for somebody matters greatly about whether or not they have a very nuanced position on it. So when you have somebody who is talking about these issues and they actually have no clue what they're talking about, they will just naturally find a way closer to the center because that's kind of what we like to do. We don't want to be considered extreme by any means or measure, especially out in public. So we'll find ways to actually incentivize ourselves to make sure we don't express our real attitudes. Same thing can actually be said with um, political party identification. Research from Gallup has actually shown that 
partisan identity has gone down dramatically over the last recent years and a rise of people who are identifying as independents. Now, that sounds like that's in favor of people who are arguing against culture wars and polarization. Because if there's less partisan identity, that means people who are just frustrated with the political system that they were forced into, they actually have much more nuanced positions. They're much more centrist at the end of the day. And they just don't want to identify with anything in our political system. The problem with that, and I bet you're going to talk about this, there's no such thing as an actual independent. Data and research has shown that, that people who claim that they're independents just hate the idea of identifying with a particular group of people, which we'll talk about in a second, but they still have just as partisan attitudes as your hardcore partisans today. There was a really cool study that was done that I believe independents today have more extreme polarized attitudes than actual partisans back in the 1970s and 80s, which is a pretty good argument that polarization happens whether we think so or not. So the thing I've been kind of waiting on this whole time, my, my big shot, my gotcha, <laughs> gotcha, is if the average person isn't really so politicized, they don't make decisions based on any party affiliation or what they see from these more extreme political pundits like you're talking about us or Charlie Kirk or whatever, not that we're any kind of mainstream. Sure. Uh, I yeah, know we're, all we're of the, our listeners. We're the extreme. <laughs> but where we are extreme on the left, I, I think we're certainly to the left of mainstream Democratic politicians, which is the argument, right? That people that are really engaged become more extreme and polarized, but the average American is somewhere in the middle and they don't care about culture wars, what we would call culture wars. They're just trying to live their lives. My question would be explain COVID. Why did only 50% of the population get vaccinated? Why does 50% of the population refuse to get vaccinated? Why from your uncle that just wants to watch a Packer game, will you hear that masks don't work and that you're just breathing in your own germs? And from, does your dad and your your mother-in-law, did they get vaccinated? What do they think? Is that a better, like how is this information getting out to all of these people seemingly if they're not paying attention to any of this and they don't care about it i think that's a very good question would you believe me if i actually have an article down below in the next segment about that exact same thing that argues in favor of what you're arguing for i would say that person that wrote that article is very smart (laughs) i would say fiorina and others in the skeptical camp would probably say that when you look at the differences of ideological positions they are relatively remaining constant so while people are still becoming more sordid and more fragmented, they're not actually changing their positions too much when it comes to a lot of these issues. And the differences between, we'll say, Republican positions or we'll say independent Republicans versus independent Democrats, the more centrist of the bunch, actually remain relatively stable even in times of what we consider culture war high points. And my response would be I guarantee you those same people that are now against vaccinations got polio vaccinations when they were children, but they're following suit with this extremist right-wing rhetoric against vaccination now and that their viewpoints did actually change. 
I think that's a good way of handling that. I was just curious what your thoughts were. So I wanted to move now to arguments for culture war and polarization. As you can tell, this is where Jason is on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you actually may find a lot of these arguments very nice and compelling. The basis of where culture wars come from, at least according to these scholars, is that there is a super big divide in specifically religious traditionalism and secular progressivism. Where have we seen that before? Yeah, and I definitely agree. It's religious conservatives and religious liberals along with secular, you know, kind of lumped into that group. You've got basically the right-wing evangelical Christians, the Orthodox Jews, and the conservative Catholics on one side, and then the liberal Christians, liberal Jews, and secularists. I mean, obviously there's people from all sorts of different religions grouped in on both sides too, but it's always going to kind of fall in that conservative versus liberal side, and religion is a big part of that. The more conservative you are religiously, the more conservative you are culturally. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what it is. So data shows that the one thing conservatives tend to care about more than anything else, at least according to political science literature, is they want to maintain social hierarchies and order. I mean, that's the idea, right? They are conservatives. They are conserving the status quo. That is the point of conservatism. But you also have to remember that what they're conserving is a social hierarchy, and they are conserving an actual order of how things should be done in this country. And that's when we talk about systemic racism because America was founded where the only people who had power were white Christian landowners. Exactly. And then also with the recent changes of... And, I w- and man, men, white Christian right. male landowners to be more specific. <laughs> and then with all the recent changes in our culture and our societal norms, which I would argue actually happened very quickly, especially in the 2000s, that led to some pretty severe backlash from traditionalists who are trying to preserve that norm. Because as humans, we don't like to change. And for conservatives, they really don't like to change. And that's on a neurological level, which is very fascinating, but I'm not going to get into. Um, uh, Talking about what you were saying before, Jason, going all the way back to the pandemic in 2020, an article by Perry Whitehead and Grubbs actually showed that Christian nationalism was a leading predictor in America's incautious behavior during the COVID-19 pandemic. And what was interesting, it wasn't just religiosity. Religiosity and church attendance actually predicted better cautious behavior and safer behavior, but specifically Christian nationalist behavior is what drove the behaviors that you are trying to talk about before with the COVID-19 pandemic. Another article by Castle and Strupp in 2021 also found that religion played a significant role in cultural issues, but not economic ones. So that's where I was saying that I'm kind of getting a little bit of pushback on there's no such thing as an economic and a moral divide. Or they're all the same. Well, at least in this particular study, religious people who are very conservative and usually authoritarian did not hold authoritarian economic views. It didn't have actually any influence over their economic views. It only counted towards their cultural views, but significantly. They also found that up to a third of Americans hold extremely polarized issue positions. So I want to ask you this, Jason. We have a third of people, that would include on both sides, so we would probably say 15% on each side, right? If a third of all Americans hold extremely polarized issue positions, that means the rest of them don't. Two-thirds don't. Would we consider ourselves a culturally divided nation? If a, th- if a third has it. Right. So that's still a lot. That is a lot. That's millions and millions of people. <laughs> but I mean, it would help to know a little bit more information of do two thirds of people not really understand the issue, don't care about it. So they haven't really formed any opinion or do they hold an opinion, but they don't, you know, like, oh, I will gladly change if you talk to me about it. I don't think that those two things 
are necessarily true, right? Like, I don't think it means that two-thirds of people will gladly change their position with a friendly conversation. I think they just don't. Well, it goes back to what I said before. There is no such thing as an independent. Right. And I completely agree with you. I would actually also argue that having a third of people who have extremely polarized positions can influence all of those people to having more polarized positions, even if they're not at the poles or the extremes like the other third are. Or they just wait till they get an issue that they are polarized and then for, polarized. And, and then they stick with that group. But what if I told you, Jason, I'm going to give you the big sell here, right? <laughs> that everything we talked about means nothing. Is that great? Because more recently, political scholars have now becoming using a different way of measuring polarization, and that's group polarization and social identity. So like you said before, and I actually would agree with this myself, you don't have to know a lot about something to hold an opinion about something. You just have to be told about it. In her book, Dr. Liliana Mason, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Hold on. What's her doctorate in? I want to know if, if she should be calling herself a doctor or if it's like a Jill Biden situation okay. where I don't value her PhD. Oh, no. It, it's a She's a political researcher. Oh, boy. So <laughs> if I'm choking on a chicken bone in a restaurant. Oh, you wouldn't go to Liliana Mason. Oh, I'm boy. sorry. She is a fun person to follow on Twitter, by the way. I would recommend that. Her 2018 book, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity, is exactly this argument where it doesn't matter what people actually think about the issues. People are stupid, and I understand that. They don't know about things, they're not engaged, that's fine. But it doesn't take much to identify yourself with a group of people, and it doesn't do much more, or take much more, to hate another group of people. And that's what we're seeing today, actually. Is that while issue attitudes among the general public are remaining constant, even today, negative feelings about partisan identities is significantly growing. One study showed that a third of Democrats and a half of Republicans today would not be okay if their child married someone of the opposing party. That's compared to only 4 to 5% of people when they were asked the same question back in the 1960s. Another study had people pretend to hire somebody for an organization. You may have heard stuff like this, Jason, where it was uh, um, racial bias. Right, Once, names. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they actually did that as well. And what they found where participants chose resumes or candidates for resumes who most likely identified of the same political group that they did. So maybe everything was the same between the resumes, but someone was like the leader of a local student Dems group or something like that. 80% of the participants hired co-partisans in this study. And discrimination among partisan identity was so strong, it even surpassed racial identity biases, which by putting more black sounding names onto something as well, which also showed in the same trial, by the way, which I also had to love like, yeah, people are racist, but they hate opposing parties even more. Yeah, honestly, if I had to hire someone for anything and it was like, oh, I ran the Young Republicans, I'd be like, oh boy. Well, kind of actually, yeah, because an explanation of that was people today seem, and even through most of our history, people today seem that- I'll never have to hire, just to be clear, I'm I'm never going to have to hire anybody. (laughs) I I despise any kind of leadership roles. Oh, okay. But people today find it okay to discriminate based on political ideology, which I think I would argue is also true. Political ideology is not, again, everything's politics. You can't just say, hey, by the way, I absolutely hate gay people and then just expect me to treat you the same after that because that's a separate issue. I'm not going to compartmentalize anything. So I think that is a good form of discrimination because it is all based on ideas at the end of the day. But it just goes to show that one does not have to know much about politics to hate another group of people for it, which is why it makes what we're being told from sources like Joe Rogan, Newsmax, Fox News, The Daily Wire, Turning Points USA with their crazy women clinics. So 
dangerous. Oh, like I said, just listen to the rhetoric. It's all about how they're going to come after your children. And it's based on like the most fear they can possibly generate in you. So when we're talking about polarization and culture wars, it's actually okay to think of it all as polarization, but just different kinds. You actually kind of alluded to this before, whether it's partisan sorting, group tension rising, or that people are agreeing or disagreeing on a particular issue. That's all polarization. It's just different kinds. Ezra Klein in his book, which I still highly recommend, talked about how different kinds of polarization should have different categories for them. So he tried to categorize them as issue polarization and identity-based polarization, where you can have one or the other, and it's still considered polarization at the end of the day. How does that sound to you? you It's Yeah, I mean, any kind of way to group, like you said, it's kind of, uh, we're tribalistic. Yep, we are. As at a base, and we always want to have the people that we protect that are part of our group, and then the people that we hate, the outsiders. Yep. So any way that we can do that. We will. And that goes right into our political attitudes. That goes into how we vote. It goes into how we talk, into how we act, and what friends we have. It goes into everything. So that's what partisanship and polarization is in the political scholar world. So I want to end this with a couple of key takeaways. First and foremost, be very careful when reading things in the media or watching them about culture wars and polarizations. Most scholars are still debating about what the term even means today and how to accurately measure it. So when you see all this stuff about culture wars are increasing and stuff like that, figure out and ask, what kind of polarization is this? Is this issue polarization? Is this identity polarization? Or is something else happening? Or is this guy just really want to have sex with the brown Eminem? <laughs> or figure out what the hell is going on in Tucker Carlson's mind. You also have to remember that most people do not consume political media like you do. Remember, by listening to this podcast, you are already in the vast minority of people. So when considering culture wars in the future, ask yourself, is this happening in the mass public with everybody? Or is this just a smaller group of people that's just extremely loud and that's what our political bubble pushes us to? And then finally, remember that most people actually don't care about the issues themselves when focusing on political opinions. They care about their identity, the groups that they have, the friends that they share, everything like that when it comes to how they form their own image of themselves. You don't have to know much to have an opinion on something. And you don't have to know a lot to hate another group of people. And you don't have to know a lot to have your own podcast. As we show you now. Otherwise, that's all. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you in the next episode. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at ThinkProPod. You can email us at ThinkProPod at gmail.com. And remember, when in doubt, think progressively. Because I had talked previously about people getting voodoo dolls of Clarence Thomas and Anthony, or uh, not Anthony, he's already dead. Alito. Yeah, Samuel Alito. I, I just want to make it very clear. I'm not talking about going to their house with a gun and, and shooting them. That's much too obvious. Use the supernatural. Oh my God. I was saying that, you know, I was just watching that that anime Death Note. You want to Death Note them? I will tell you, if I had a Death Note and I could control if and how they died, and this, you know, for anybody who who out there who maybe gains this power, just make it really freaky, right? (laughs) 
Like, there would be so many conservatives, Mitch McConnell, all these people that would be dying of a heart attack while having sex with a pool boy or autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> In that way, their friends and family will cover it up for you. You don't even have to do anything. I, uh, Light Yagami was an idiot. <laughs> And if there was any takeaway from this podcast, it was that Light Yagami was the true idiot of that show. Right, like, you just make him die, you know, the autoerotic asphyxiation, or you have him go out like that. No one's gonna wanna, gonna wanna report that that's what happened. They're gonna pay off the medical examiner, you know, especially if it's somebody rich and famous. They're gonna give that guy ten grand to say it was natural causes. End of story. No, you know, no police investigation. Don't worry about it. It's it's 100% we, we got this you're good move on i'd never get caught <laughs> where's my death note freaky kira is what jason would be kira yeah there would be like no one would talk about it it would just be like uh clarence thomas uh, ascended into heaven yesterday <laughs> uh totally fine nothing crazy happened i promise so just saying if there's any shinigamis listening <laughs> Give me a death note. Let's go. <laughs> let's fix let's fix this stuff.